Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianmedia.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host, and I hope that your Advent or and or Philip's fast season is going well, that you are fasting, you're abstaining, traditionally abstaining from meat and dairy products on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. At least that is the tradition in the Byzantine liturgical tradition. And also increased prayer, charity, and don't forget the sacrament of confession, the mystery of confession, a really very, very healing sacrament. Now, this period of Advent, you notice I use both words, East and West, Advent or Philip's Fast. And again, reminder that the Philip's Fast is called such simply because in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, the our, what you might call our Advent season, begins after the Feast of St. Philip, which happens to fall on November 14th, which was a couple weeks ago already. And we're well into it. And so they seem to call it, uh, for whatever reason, Philip's Fast. It's a good way of remembering it, but it's 40 days before Christmas. And Sometimes this idea of fasting, of abstaining, of having a kind of a penitential tone to this preparatory season before Christmas is maybe a bit strange to Western ears, both in the church and out of the church. However, if we look deep enough into the Western tradition, we actually find that a very similar practice was the case for many centuries, and there is still an echo or remnant of that even today. Even though in the Western church, the season of Advent is seen in a kind of a positive light, a sort of a joyful expectation it is, also it uses the color purple. And this is one of those echoes or remnants of the long tradition of the church, East and West, where the season of Advent or Philip's Fast, was indeed penitential. In fact, the color purple in East and West is a penitential color. It's a very interesting color, too. If I bring in a little bit of my art background here to help out this explanation, the color purple is a blend of red and deep blues, which come together to create this deep, rich purple. Red is a very advancing color, sometimes used in a sense of royalty or celebration. Blue is, of course, is a more recessive color, sometimes referred to or associated with a more calming or recessive posture. And you put those two together and you have the color purple, a rich color, a deep color, because the season takes us deep into both light and darkness. It takes us into the darkness and light, not only of the days, and days will begin to get lighter fairly soon in about a month, but also it takes us in the darkness of our own repentance, a kind of a self-inventory, a spiritual self-check kind of a spiritual pulse check, where we look at 
what we have to clean up, what we have to improve upon and divest ourselves of. And we help ourselves to do that by involving ourselves in the practice of fasting, of abstinence. Now, I mentioned it can be Monday, Wednesday, and Friday of no meat or dairy products. That is the traditional fast, especially in the Eastern churches. But there's other things you can do. You can modify that, or you can ideally add on to that. We pull back from anything that is kind of like the clutter of our life, psychologically or spiritually or physically. Even physical things, we need to get rid of a lot of clutter, especially because during this season, the rest of the world outside of the church tells us to take on a lot of clutter, buy a lot of things, indulge in a lot of things, eat a lot of things, drink a lot of things. It's about taking on and getting cluttered. Whereas in the church, East and West, it's about becoming uncluttered, cleaner, more divested, more vigilant, more open to receive then the coming of God in the flesh. Now, there's an interesting, very, very interesting book. It's titled Benedict XVI and Beauty in Sacred Art and Architecture. This was actually a collection of essays. I highly recommend all of you to read this book, especially if you are in any way interested in liturgy, both East and West. Benedict XVI and Beauty in Sacred Art and Architecture. This book is put out by Four Courts Press out of Dublin and Scepter Publishers out of New York. And it's actually the proceedings from the second FOTA International Liturgical Conference. This was in 2009, but the book came out in 2011. It's a series of essays on beauty, sacred art, architecture from Pope Benedict XVI's spirituality, you know, his kind of focus on liturgy, which was really much admired by the Eastern churches. And in this book, one of the articles is by a woman who I'm proud to say is a friend of mine, Helen Dietz. She wrote an article called The Nuptial Meaning of Classic Church Architecture. And she goes back in history to talk about how the art and the architecture is wedded with the liturgy, theology, spirituality of the church. And in regard to Advent, she is talking about centuries ago how in the church, the Latin church, there was the use of veils veils that surrounded a canopy that was over the altar. Now, those of you who are Latin right, you may recall that many times in your tabernacles today, when you open a tabernacle, you'll see like a little veil there at the very entrance of the door of the tabernacle. Well, that's actually a tiny remnant of what was once a veil that went all the way around, a curtain that went all the way around the baldachin or a canopy or that was over the altar. And that's centuries ago, especially in the Middle Ages. It has since died out and is just a remnant left, as I mentioned. But here's what Helen has to say about that. Although the front veil of the altar had from the 10th century become disused for reasons that are unknown to us, a transverse veil still hid the entire sanctuary from the sight of the congregation throughout the penitential season of Lent and eventually of Advent too to be open during these seasons only briefly for the reading of the gospel at Mass. The Lenten sanctuary veil, used also in the Armenian church in the 4th century as well as in the Coptic church, of course these are eastern churches, corresponds to the veil of the priestly sanctuary of the Jerusalem temple and was a way of likening the days of Lent and Advent to the days of the exile of Adam and his descendants from the earthly paradise before the coming of the Messiah. The themes of exile and of the expectation of the Messiah, the Messianic reign, predominate in the Roman Rite readings for Lent and Advent. Now, furthermore, Helen Dietz also says in her article, the season of Advent, likewise, was a figure for the betrothal, which in this life, while Christmas Day, like Easter, was a figure for the final nuptials in heaven. The Christmas reception of the Eucharist marked the end of the mournful but expectant season of Advent during which time the Eucharist was not received by the laity, and throughout which time the statues and pictures in the church 
at least in some locales, were veiled from sight just as they were in Lent. Now, she was referring to the church centuries ago during the Middle Ages, but this was a custom that was centuries old at that time already. So in other words, what I'm pointing out here, through the help of Helen's wonderful article, I really enjoy her article, it's a must-read, the nuptial meaning of classic church architecture. The point here is that there is a tradition, a history, in both the East and Western churches of this deeply penitential tone of the Advent season. Yes, a time of expectation with a kind of a little glimmer of light to it. It's not quite as dark as Lent, but there is a glimmer there of expectation, kind of a positive glimmer. Nonetheless, that little glimmer is still ensconced in a certain darkness, a darkness in which we abstain, pull back, put on veils, veil the church like in the Old Testament temple, and we abstain. We fast. We go to confession. So, even though something was practiced in the church for many centuries and may have been eroded in time, I hesitate to use the term disuse, fallen out of use, but it almost seems that way. Or we may have just a remnant of it. But nonetheless, we have to remember that in the church, East and West, there are certain things, many things actually, that are good for all times. In a sense, in the church, there's nothing new. It's just that we look at old things, but in new ways. And sometimes all that remain is a remnant. But there's always a central point, an underlying message underneath it all, whether it's the purple that is still used in the Western Church for Advent, or the veils that were around the altar back in the Middle Ages when people abstained from the Eucharist, or in the Eastern Church, as we have the fasting Monday, Wednesday, and Friday of Philip's fast, the increased charity and penance and confession. Regardless of all that, the point is the church prepared for a great feast, for the coming of somebody, something significant, such as, of course, Christ, the second person Trinity, coming in the flesh, the church prepares for that, encouraging us to pull back, to open up, to divest, to empty out, to repent, to take stock of ourselves, so that then we are open to move forward again with that light of Christmas, filled with the presence of the newborn Savior. But there's a beautiful rhythm here. It's a rhythm that our culture has lost. It's a rhythm that was present in the church both east and west, partially present in the west today, and certainly present in the east as well. I'm Father Thomas Leo on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Welcome to a St. Nicholas Minute. Do you know what the Christmas spirit is? Some say the Christmas spirit is a feeling a feeling of love, joy, and peace that comes this time each year. <laughs> you know, it's not a bad answer. It's just incomplete. The Christmas spirit is the living presence of the third member, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, actively animating and perfecting the lives of Christians. In fact, the love, joy, and peace that we associate with the Christmas spirit are what St. Paul calls the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Many wish the Christmas spirit could be with us all year round, well, I've got news for you. It can. Why do you think I'm so jolly? 
So even long after the Christmas decorations are stored away, our hearts can be filled 365 days with the same love, joy, and peace that the angels proclaim to the shepherds if we are open to the power of the Holy Spirit, the true Christmas spirit. For Christ is born, glorify Him. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. The Tabor Life Institute, which is dedicated to the formation and education in the theology of the body. To find out more about the Tabor Life Institute, you can go to taborlife.org. That's taborlife.org. Especially if you're interested in conferences and retreats, in particular for youth, young adults, and also for those of you who speak Spanish. That's taborlife.org. Okay, welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. And we're talking about this preparatory season for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in the flesh. And we've talked about it before, but we're getting further further into it, sort of immersing ourselves into it, going more and more deeply into it. And I think it's very necessary for all of us Christians, East and West, and to look into our past and look into our heritage to see that, in fact, we both shared a very rich penitential tone to this season of Advent, or as we say in the Byzantine Church, Philip's Fast, I think it's very relevant today because one of the things that we need in our culture today is less self-centeredness, less materialism, less taking on. And so, again, the wisdom, the spirituality of the church, the ancient spirituality, the ancient wisdom comes to our rescue to supply what is lacking, even though we don't even understand it sometimes. We don't even know what it is that's lacking. But if we reach into the riches of the church, East and West, we will find the answer to what is lacking, to our deepest yearnings. Deepest yearnings and desires of the human heart are there all the time in the liturgy, the sacramentality, the spirituality of the church. During this time in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, we've just been celebrating. In fact, we've got about two more days of it called the post-festive period of the entrance of the Theotokos. In other words, the entrance of the Mother of God into the temple. This actually is based upon an apocryphal gospel, but nonetheless, there is a message there. There's a theological significance to it. That's an interesting thing about a lot of what happens in the Eastern churches. We tend to celebrate not so much themes as events, but events which carry a message, whether they are absolutely historically proven. Maybe they are. We can't disprove it. We can't disprove the story, the tradition that the Virgin Mary was brought into the temple by her parents at age three. And she was raised in the temple, fed by angels. That's the tradition of this feast. And it's been retained in the Eastern Church's calendar. And we can't disprove that, nor can we absolutely prove it. We go according to a tradition or how ancient that tradition is. But the main point is, is that this feast and it's the story around it conveys something very significant to our period of preparation for Christmas. It conveys the message, the call to ourselves, that if the mother of God herself was prepared to become the living tabernacle of God, then so too do we have a lot of work to do to prepare ourselves to become also the temples of the Holy Spirit, to receive Christ within us. And so that's why the emphasis here today on embracing this Advent period, the penitential dimension of it, very, very seriously, 
whether we are Latinite Catholics or Eastern Catholics or Eastern Orthodox Christians or whatever, whomever, it's good to embrace the wisdom of the church in its preparation for Christmas. So the entrance of Mother of God is about her parents, Joachim and Anna, bringing the Mother of God into the temple as a little girl, as I mentioned, being raised in the temple as a preparation. In fact, we refer to this feast day as the prelude to the benevolence of God, the prelude. So already we're kind of setting the stage, building things up. In the Latin Rite Church, the Sundays of Advent have a specific significance to them. They're sort of a, a countdown or a count up to Christmas, and they light the candle and so on. The Eastern churches don't have that per se, but they do have certain moments along the road, along this 40-day journey towards Christmas, and one of those moments is, of course, this feast day of the entrance of the Mother of God. There's a pre-festive, the feast itself, and a post-festive. So in some of the liturgical texts on this very day, the prayers, if you were a Byzantine Catholic and you wanted to pray the divine office, these are some of the words that you would be praying on this very day. O Lady and Bride of God, you enter the temple of God in your infancy to be brought up in the Holy of Holies, for you are holy. The Archangel Gabriel was sent to serve you and bring you food. All the heavenly powers were amazed at the sight of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Therefore, O most pure and immaculate Mother of God, since you are glorified in heaven and on earth, through your prayers, save our human race. Now, naturally, this would be sung to a chant. In particular, it would be tone eight in the Ruthenian Carpathorusen chant, for those of you who may be interested. But let's look at another passage as well. Again, this is all for this day. Today is the prelude of the benevolence of God and the herald of the salvation of mankind. For the virgin openly appears in the temple of God and foretells Christ to all. Let us also with full voice exclaim to her, Hail, fulfillment of the Creator's plan. Now, we live in a time when biblical scholarship and a lot of church scholarship was heavily influenced by the historical critical method, which is okay, it's fine, we need that. But there's a kind of a tendency as a result of that to dismiss, almost to scoff at, that which cannot be scientifically proven by the historical critical method. And this story of the Virgin Mary being brought into the temple is one that can be easily kind of laughed at a bit. But it's in the liturgical calendar. And and then I pose this to you. Do you remember the story of St. Teresa of Laizu? She entered the monastery at a very young age, at about 13. And she actually kind of deceived the bishop because she was too young. But she put her hair up. She made herself look a little bit older. In fact, there's a famous picture of her that actually portrays that. In fact, I actually drew a sketch of her one time for that. And she entered the monastery presuming to be older than she was. And even then, she was only about 15. About like 13, 15. I think she was 13 and she wanted to be uh, said that she was 15. I think that's the way the story went. The fact is she was still very young and she tried to make herself seem older. Now, that's a fact. That is a fact. Now, that can happen with a woman that we know of and we believe because it is true. There's even a photo to document it. Could we not believe that a young virgin, just a few years younger as a child, could also be brought into the temple and raised there? just like you would turn a young lady over to the monastery, especially years ago. You turn them over, and that was basically it. You basically didn't see them after that, or hardly ever. So I think that we need to be more open to these traditional stories, but most importantly, by the fact that they're still celebrated liturgically today, we need to be open to the message, what they're saying to us. Remember, liturgy, the scriptures, are not history lessons. Yes, we need to know their history. That's vital. It's essential. We need to know their historical context, but 
Most importantly, we need to know what it is they're trying to say about us and for us. That's what's important. And that's the magic of liturgy, both East and West, and of the liturgical tradition. Immersing ourselves in the liturgical life of the church, especially during seasons like Advent, you're really embracing it. Things that may have gone out of style. We don't do that anymore, as we say. But yet they have a perennial value, like fasting. Embracing those things really, really helps us to immerse ourselves into the mystery of the upcoming feast. It makes it so much richer. Now, we have some other feasts as well, little points along the way. Again, as I mentioned, in the Western Church, we don't, they have the Advent candle. The East does not have that, but it does have still some sort of demarcations along the way of the 40-day preparatory period for Christmas. And one of those, as I mentioned, is, of course, the entrance of the Mother of God in the temple. There's also the Feast of St. Nicholas. Now, there's another case where many will doubt, well, did he really exist? We don't really know that much about him. There's so much that's fable or traditional or popular about him. So they sometimes don't take him so seriously. And he got sort of fused with the more corrupted version of Santa Claus and Kris Kringle and such, etc., etc. But the point is, once again, there is a message there. And in fact, that message, that, that, that person, we do believe existed, especially in the Byzantine church, because that person is considered to be the patron of the Byzantine church. That's right. That's how seriously we take St. Nicholas. And if we stop and think for a moment, St. Nicholas embodies so much of what this season is about, and also virtues like, like humility and even justice, you know, fortitude, a man of prayer, a man of meekness, a man of meekness yet strength all at the same time. And to involve ourselves in the traditions surrounding him is a way of bringing into our lives, especially children. St. Nicholas is not just for children, nor is Christmas just for children. But let's face it, there's a very, very significant contribution that the Christmas time and St. Nicholas brings to the development of children, their psycho-spiritual development, something very essential, which is why we practice customs like having our children put their shoes out on the eve of St. Nicholas, which would be the evening of December 5th, and then they wake up to have those shoes magically filled with little treats and gifts, which of course is a variation on one of the the themes and stories of St. Nicholas. Again, we turn to our liturgy for the prayers of this feast day. This is from the Matins of December 6th, the Feast of St. Nicholas. O Bishop and Father Nicholas, while alive in Myra, you manifested yourself as a learned man anointed with spiritual myrrh. You made the world fragrant with the myrrh of your miracles. You continued to pour out your myrrh, both through the fragrance of your words and through our continual remembrance of you. You shine on earth by the rays of your miracles, O wise Nicholas. You call all nations on earth to glorify and praise him who glorified you. Therefore, O chosen among the fathers, implore him to deliver from all anguish those who faithfully and lovingly venerate your memory. In my particular eparchy, which of course is what our dioceses are called in the Eastern churches, eparchies, it's the eparchy of Parma, the Ruthenian eparchy, Byzantine eparchy of Parma. We have a custom of the regions of our eparchy, because our eparchy is 12 states, so it's broken into regions, but the regions come together annually during the Feast of St. Nicholas. And it is a time in which our bishop, who has to shepherd 12 states, <laughs> is rarely seen. So it's a chance for him to come and be seen and be present among his people during the Feast of St. Nicholas. So St. Nicholas celebrations are a rather big event in many parts of our eparchy in the different regions. And the bishop comes out, he celebrates liturgy with the people. There's usually a banquet afterwards. And one of the nice things we do also 
is that we acknowledge the wedding jubilarians. In other words, those couples who've been married 25 years, 50 years, and up. And it's all part of this preparation, all part of the meaning of this very, very glorious season of light, the season of our Lord's nativity, the great condescension, the great kenosis, self-emptying, the incarnation. In other words, the birth of Christ, Christmas. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Thanks for listening to Light of the East. Light of the East's mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Or hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. For the first time. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610, Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610, Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K, Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years. <laughs>